0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Authors Access, where authors get published and published authors get successful. I'm Tyler Tischler, Associate Editor at Reader Views, filling in for Irene Watson.
1: And I'm Victor Volkman from Loving Healing Press in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I'd like to welcome all our listeners to episode number 160 in our series. Tonight's topic will be the first word on the book publishing industry with special guest Jason Bogue from Gallicat. You can learn more about our guest on the Authors Access website, which is AuthorsAccess.com. We'd love to hear from you about tonight's show. Please send us your questions and comments to info at AuthorsAccess.com. Now, tonight we are on the line with Jason Bogue, who is the editor of Media Bistro's publishing blog, otherwise known as Gally Cat. His first book, will Write for Change, How New York City Writers Survived the Great Depression, is forthcoming from O.R. Books. His work has been published in the Los Angeles Review of Books, The Believer, Poetry Foundation, and Salon Magazine. Jason worked as a Peace Corps volunteer in Guatemala from 2000 to 2002, went on to earn his master's degree in journalism from NYU a few years later, and subsequently edited the Publishing Spot blog for the business blog network, No More Media. For three years, Jason worked as an investigative reporter for Judicial Reports. Jason joined Gally Cat as a freelance blogger in 2008, and Media Bistro promoted him to publishing editor in 2009. He is also taught as adjunct journalism professor at New York University. Well, good evening, Jason.
0: Hi, it's great to be here. Well, Thank you for joining us, Jason. First of all, could you maybe just tell us for our listeners who don't know a little bit about Media Bistro and um, the Galley Cat blog and just what you do for them?
2: Absolutely. I I edit on a daily basis. I'm writing about six stories uh, about the publishing industry for Media Bistro. Uh, We cover everything from innovations in self-publishing, to book deals uh, for famous authors, to developments in the book selling industry. So we, we cover the whole gamut of publishing news on a daily basis. I have uh, three writers who work with me, and uh, I also co-edit a blog called App Newser, where we kind of show media professionals how they can use the world of apps and these new tools for mobile devices and use, use them in their careers, whether you're a writer or any kind of media professional. And uh, then I also, Media Bistro hosts lots of classes and conferences for different kinds of media professionals. Uh, for instance, right now we're running, uh, it's called our Literary Festival. It's just an online literary festival where we bring great writers like Susan Arlene or Rebecca Skloot to uh, an online chat room. And writers come in, ask them questions, and workshop their own material. So we run things like that. And then we run, in in the real world, we also run conferences. Uh, For instance, at the end of the year in December, I'll be helping host and program. uh, It's called the uh, Media App Summit. And uh, that's where we'll be talking about all the different media apps and companies that are developing apps um, that you can use in your media career. And we wear a lot of different hats at Media Bistro, but that's part of the reason I love it there
0: yeah wow that that sounds like a lot and a lot of it is um sounds very online and, and technological I, I'm wondering if a lot of the the stuff in the publish industry you cover is uh, about like traditional publishers or self publishing and I know self publishing has been growing a lot in the last few years so how do you how do you see that um, is is that making an, a significant impact on what you cover? Oh, absolutely. Uh, so, for instance, when I started
2: this job back in two thousand well, when I was first becoming a publishing blogger around two thousand seven, everyone just focused on the big six publishers in the traditional publishing industry. but um within a few years of that, uh, we started to see digital books taking off and uh and then self publishing so I think we went from just covering the big six publishers and traditional almost a 50-50 mix now. I mean, we have so many different features directed at the world of self-publishing now. Once a week we run where we look at the the books that are just making the most sales right now. We run lots of tips for self-published authors. Uh, we, we we list lots of resources that self-published writers can use. Everything, from where to find free images to use on your book covers, to where to find free footage to use for book trailers. So we really have over the last few years evolved into a very servicey oriented site towards this new generation of writers that are coming up through the self-publishing industry.
0: So uh, what? Um, self-published books—are you—are you seeing as as making headway? And are they—are um, you covering e-books as well? Are they also um, something that is is climbing up the ladder with the increase of e-book sales? Oh yeah, it's it's, it's pretty dramatic actually.
2: Uh, just uh, last week, the uh, American Association of Publishers revealed some really stunning statistics from last year. And when it comes to fiction, right now uh, the single dominant format is e-books. Not hardcovers, not paperbacks, not trade paperbacks, but eBooks are now the dominant format when it comes to reading fiction. So we're seeing a lot of fiction readers switching over to books where those other those other fields are being wiped out. But we are seeing it's it's now the dominant format. It's the way that most people prefer to read, which is uh, a real landmark for the industry. And when it comes to self-publishing, uh, we're seeing some runaway bestsellers right now. Uh, if you look at the Amazon's list of the top 100 best-selling books across the whole site,
0: 20 of them are written by self-published authors. So we're really wow. seeing a lot of growth this year. So I'm wondering, you know, what kinds of similarities and differences are do you see in our time in the Great Depression for authors? Well, the, the Great Depression has really spoke
2: to me as a writer. I mean, I, I lost my job uh, around... Uh, Before I moved to Media Bistro, uh, our company was shut down uh, when the recession hit. And uh, I spent a year just trying to make it as a freelance writer. It was very difficult. And uh, so uh, what I kind of did to help uh, console myself or actually look for even models for the future, I I went back and I looked at a lot of different writers from the Great Depression. We've forgotten most of them now. But back then, uh, there were a lot of writers who were, some of them were literally starving. And uh, they, they were struggling very mightily against these economic forces and it was a very difficult time for them, and uh, their stories kind of spoke to me, and uh, so I just started trying to find out as much as I could about them, and so when I ended up writing this book, I, I picked ten of those writers, and I just put their stories side by side and kind of compared their experiences to ours and the moments uh, to the moments that we've experienced now, and uh, there's some, there's a lot of similarities, but you'd also be surprised how different that time was as well. Um, the most striking thing that I noticed is Back then, writers were marching in the streets every week. They were saying, we deserve... We deserve jobs. We deserve work just like all of the other laid off people in this country. And, uh, so they were able to actually compel the government to create, it was called the Federal Writers Project, which was almost, uh, you could call it a bailout for writers. And that put like 6,000 and some odd writers back to work around the country, uh, creating different things for the government. And, uh, it was a fantastic moment for writers and it kind of carried a lot of struggling, novelists and poets and other authors through a very difficult time.
0: Wow, okay. So could, could you, like, tell us the name of maybe one that you think that we would we would know and, and or or one that you think we should know and a little um, bit about... Yeah, their yeah, I'd struggle. be happy to. Um,
2: Richard Wright is probably the most uh, okay. famous writer that I mentioned, the author of Native Son, and right. uh, he was actually a worker within the Federal Writers Project. His career probably wouldn't have survived if it wasn't for the Federal Writers Project. He worked with them for many years, uh, working on guidebooks and just kind of reporting on different things in the city uh, while being paid by the government for this work as a writer, and you can now I was able to go back and find some of the work that he did, and it was some beautiful stuff, and he worked between Chicago and New York City, and left behind this kind of legacy of uh, of writing that he produced during the Great Depression that we kind of forget about because his career kind of took off uh, at the end of the Great Depression when he published Native Son, which is probably his most famous book, and he became kind of a literary celebrity after that. so uh, he, He's probably the most recognizable writer that I study in my book.
1: Electronic galleys. Jason, do you see the, uh, these actually being put to good use and are, is it worth paying $150 to have someone post my PDF file?
2: <laughs> I, I, think, I think they are very useful for someone like me on the other side as a journalist. I, I, I have hardly any time in my life to sort through the very numerous piles of galleys that are sent to my house. <laughs> Uh, on a weekly basis and, uh, so I urge all publishers and authors to send me digital copies. It just makes my life a lot easier and it's easier for me to read them because I can put them on a digital device, carry that with me and read wherever I am rather than being bound to the physical book. So I think for, for the journalist it's going to be a very helpful thing. And then also, if you look at the amount of money writers and publishers are paying to mail these galleys to us, I, I, I think it's a bigger savings to pay. Uh, maybe you have to pay a small fee or, or just send them a digital copy of your book over email. I mean, there, there's, it's there are simple ways to convey these digital formats and it can save you a fortune in postage. I mean I'm watching publishers send so much money on these galleys and circulating them to people.
1: Yeah, you know, the conventional wisdom was always, you know, six months in advance, publishers weekly, Kirkus Library Journal and so on. I'm just trying to decide, you know, can I can I go off of that? Model completely and just rely on digital galleys?
2: Uh, I, I think it'd be difficult, actually. If if, if you want those traditional, um, if you want those traditional views, especially with publishers weekly and things, you, you will need a galley. I, I'm not saying a, a physical galley. I don't think that's going to go away for a lot of the more traditional pulp, uh, traditional print outlets. But that's not going to change for a few years. Um, but I think you can definitely reduce the amount of galleys that you're sending to different people. You can be very strategic with your print galleys and just send them to a few outlets that you know want that. And I would say everyone else, contact them with digital galleys. I think it's a much safer way because you're not going to be shoveling that galley in a hole because if that journalist is not interested in seeing your book, they're not going to send it back to you. I mean, you've lost that copy, and it's a lot safer in my mind to do the digital galleys for the writers you don't know.
1: Yeah, right, right into that recycle bin, they go. How about uh, interactive books? Is this really something that, that's going to take off with uh, you know the bells and whistles attached to, say, uh, a fiction book where you can go off in different directions, or is this sort of a, a fad?
2: Uh, I don't think it's a fad, but I, I think you could correct so uh yeah, so we're not seeing a big market for it yet. However, I, I think there are a lot of really cool tools that you can add to a book. And so my advice to writers now would be to build those materials yourself online rather than trying to make an enhanced ebook copy. And then so the writer the, the readers who want to find that extra material they can go online and find it rather than having this expensive uh enhanced copy that you made. So um, until that market is a little more solidified and we know how much people will pay for enhanced editions, I, I, I think it's better to keep that stuff online and just focus on making the best and most economical ebook that you can.
1: Yeah, that's great and that sort of points to Pottermore and all that stuff going on.
2: Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, I I think uh, J.K. Rowling with her site uh the she's expanded the Harry Potter world, but she's done it in a space online and and her readers aren't paying any extra money to to visit that and it and it's really increasing their experience with the book and also driving sales of uh, those digital copies of her book.
1: Right, you might have mentioned it before, but I missed the conversation if it was about uh, soundcloud and and how authors can take advantage of that
2: oh well, okay, I can actually give some advice about how authors can use it. Um, I think the best thing authors can do is to record a small excerpt of their book and uh, don't don't make it very long because you want to be able to share it on Twitter and Facebook and things like that, but record a small excerpt, maybe the first page, maybe the first two pages. And, 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 do it dramatic reading. Like, uh, make sure it, it, it's engrossing and captures your reader. You can put that on SoundCloud, and then you can share that when your book comes out. You can share that on Facebook and on Twitter, and also find the audience, the community that lives on SoundCloud and visit SoundCloud, so you can find readers that way too. But it's a, it's a really quick way to show people what your book sounds like and what it feels like to read it, uh, but to convey it in a pretty non-traditional form. So, it's kind of a, it's kind of a cool tool to uh, to promote your book. That would be my advice.
0: Well, Jason, I was wondering if you could t- talk to us a little bit about the, um, the Department of Justice lawsuit against Apple and publishers. Um, could you maybe just fill us in a little bit for people that don't know anything about that, and then what do you think that means for readers and writers?
2: Yeah, well, uh, back uh, when e-books were first taking off, Kindle and Amazon basically ruled the roost when it came to digital books. They were able to name the price, and uh, they were buying a lot of e-books from publishers and selling them at a loss. They were selling them for nine ninety nine or less, basically because they knew they, they wanted people to come join this new format. They wanted to entice new readers, and so they were selling these books at a loss to themselves. Publishers saw that that was going to lead to a monopoly, that, that Kindle and Amazon were only, that was going to be the only format for reading digital books, and they wanted more variety. A few publishers, f- five publishers ultimately signed on to this, but they created an agreement called the Agency Agreement, where they said e-books prices must be set by the publisher and not by the, the retailer. So if I was selling my digital book, through one of those publishers on Amazon and I sold it for fourteen ninety nine, I would have to sell it for fourteen ninety nine on Barnes and Noble, and I would have to sell it for fourteen ninety nine on Apple and every other ebook marketplace that was out there. So uh it worked for a while and it actually helped some great uh new services pop up. Barnes and Noble developed a pretty powerful reading platform with the Nook and we saw Kobo and some other players enter the space. Even Google got involved in the space. So the space expanded and it wasn't a monopoly anymore. But uh then the Department of Justice earlier this year decided to look at it more closely and they alleged that it was actually collusion between the publishers to set that agreement and uh they said that the publishers have violated antitrust laws and so we are now, that's going to be headed to court next year, that agree, that fight about whether they broke the law or not. And uh, But a few publishers have already settled with the Department of Justice and said, we don't want to have this agreement anymore. We will withdraw from that agreement now rather than go to court over this. And so that's where we're at right now. We're kind of waiting to see what... The courts decide, and, uh, and, and everyone's starting to file their
0: different briefs in the case. So it's going to be about another year until we know how this case is going to turn out. Since you cover publishing all the time, do you have any indication of what you what you think will happen, or what do you think would be the best case scenario as the result? Oh, geez, um, it's a tough question, but I, I do think that the the
2: agency model is going to lose. I think we're going to see that go away in the next year or two. Uh, I think it served its purpose and it was a very powerful tool for publishers, but I don't think it's going to last much longer. Uh, I don't think it will survive this trial. That's my Personal feeling. I, I don't have any uh, inside knowledge about what is actually going to happen.
1: Great. Well, we're still on ebooks. Uh, I keep hearing about how the uh, library ebooks sales are going to take off with the, the patron driven access model where uh, patrons can literally ask for an ebook and the library will order it for them and deliver it down to their device. But right now, my library ebook sales are like below 5%. So am I doing anything wrong, or is this just taking a while?
2: Oh, yeah, it's going to take a lot longer. I mean, most major publishers aren't offering eBooks, or aren't offering a lot of their e or are offering them at too steep of a price for the libraries right now. It's, it, it's, it's a very mixed-up world. Libraries feel very cut out of that world right now. Um, they, they really want to have the model you talked about, and librarians are hoping that we'll have a digital feature where that will be possible for all patrons. But uh, it's been a really uphill battle, and a lot of publishers are dragging their feet on that. So I don't think it's your fault as an author. I just think the whole marketplace has to improve by leaps and bounds before uh, the before those sales pick up.
1: Well... I've also got your your ear. Uh, the other thing I've been hearing this year is that international markets are supposed to take off with e-book sales because there's all these English-speaking people around the world that haven't really had any access to American books for forever. Mm-hmm. No,
2: we, we've already seen it take off. I mean, um, Kobo and Amazon are basically, Kobo's a Canadian ebook maker. They're actually going head-to-head with Amazon right now, trying to get into as many markets as they can. Just recently, Kobo broke into Japan before anybody else did. Uh, so the, these they, they understand that these are going to be very lucrative digital book markets because they see how quickly things grew in the United States. So they know that this market's going to go dramatically. It's just a matter of when and who's going to be the dominant platform there. So they're all moving over there, trying to make that happen.
0: Besides, obviously, Media Bistro, Mm -hmm. are there any other places where you think authors should be going to find out publishing news and and keeping track of the trends in the market? Um, Yeah, I, I read Publishers Weekly every day. I read
2: Digital Book World every day. I like Publishers Lunch and Publishers Marketplace. Those are all great resources for writers. Um, There's a newer site called Book Riot that's really great. And uh, Huffington Post has a book section, too, that's uh, been doing some cool coverage as well. And I'd recommend all those sites heartily.
0: All right, great. And uh, since we're almost out of time, could we ask you, just to, um, to tell us again, remind us again about the name of your book and mm-hmm. then uh, any websites or other places that we can find you online.
2: Yeah, you can find my book. It's, uh, it's called Will Write for Change? How New York City Writers Survived the Great Depression. Uh, it's going to be coming out in November is what they're looking at for the date right now. So we, we, don't, have a, we don't have a link you can go to, but if you go to jasonbogue.com, uh, j-a-s-o-n-b-o-o-g dot com that's my personal website and I have all the information about the book about when it's coming out and you can actually see some of the material that i collected uh, in my research you can read little snippets of writing by Richard Wright and some of the great writers that I talk about in my book and uh, yeah so it's, it's a great link to kind of explore my book a little bit more so I recommend just go to jasonbo.com
1: All right. Thank you, Jason. And on behalf of Tyler and myself and Irene, who couldn't be here tonight, I know she's very sorry she missed it. All
2: right. Yeah, well, thank you for your time. It was a pleasure.
1: All right. This has been another podcast edition of Authors Access, where authors get published and published authors get successful. You can learn more about our guest on the Authors Access website, which is AuthorsAccess.com. Stay tuned for our next episode, How to Position Yourself, As an expert to the media, with special guest Marianne Reed. We'd love to hear from you about tonight's show. Please send us your questions and comments to info at authorsaccess.com. Authors Access is a joint production of Reader Views Incorporated and Loving Healing Press.
0: And for Reader Views, this is Tyler Tischler.
1: And I'm Victor Volkman in Ann Arbor, Michigan, wishing you all a good evening.